ladies, uh, gentlemen, colleagues, friends, you're all very, very welcome indeed uh, this evening to this annual uh, Horizons Humanities Lecture. Uh, my name is Jane Olmeyer, and I have the privilege of being the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our Institute of Advanced Studies uh, uh, for the Arts and Humanities. Uh, this evening, we are particularly delighted to welcome Professor Jop Lersen, who is Chair of European Studies and Modern European Literature at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. We started, or my predecessor, Professor Barkov, uh, started this um, annual Humanities Horizons lecture back in 2013 to provide a significant contribution to really reflection and advocacy uh, for the arts and humanities. And the first lecture was delivered by the president of the German Research Foundation on again, a, a very memorable lecture uh, on the humanities and society. Last year, we had another uh, uh, cracking uh, uh, lecture by uh, Jeff Crossick, Professor Jeffrey Crossick, who uh, spoke on understanding the value of arts uh, and culture. And that coincided with a very heated uh, debate taking place in Ireland around the call for a dedicated uh, Department uh, of Arts. Uh, this evening, uh, I think the timeliness of Jörg Lierson's uh, lecture will become immediately uh, apparent. I do, however, want to say a word or two about Professor Lierson, who has been a very long uh, time friend and supporter of uh, Trinity, and especially the Trinity Long Room Hub. In fact, I can safely say that without Yope uh, and uh, a number of other colleagues who led an external review of the hub back in 2008, we wouldn't have it. Uh, so he really is very, very uh, important to us. So for those of you who don't know the history uh, of the hub, uh, uh, we developed a concept for it back in 2006-07. Uh, we then commissioned a major review of the Arts and Humanities at Trinity, and Yope, along with two other colleagues, uh, was a member of that review panel. And that then coincided with the call for Peer TLI funding. In case people have forgotten what Peer TLI stands for, it's the Programme for Research in Third Level Institutions. It last gave out money in 2016, and we're all hoping uh, uh, that there might be uh, uh, another Peer TLI call in the near future. But that allowed Trinity uh, to apply uh, for funding that allowed us then to develop the hub, obviously the, the building itself. Uh, but, but the review that Yope and Roy Foster and, and, and Professor Labour uh, uh, undertook was a critical part uh, in that uh, uh, story. So we, we, we're grateful to you uh, for that, Yope, but we're also very grateful to you for sitting on our board. Um, uh, Yope has been uh, a member of our uh, uh, advisory uh, governing board. So you've been a great friend. Um, tonight, he is going to be uh, lecturing... Uh, on a topic, as I say, that couldn't be uh, more uh, uh, timely. He's looking at uh, culture and populism, uh, the crisis of the humanities and uh, uh, the crisis of Western uh, liberalism. Um, and he's going to be exploring uh, uh, these trends towards what is now becoming known as uh, illiberalism uh, in the contemporary political landscape. 
Um, I'm not going to say more about the lecture. I do, for those of you who, who don't know Yope's uh, scholarship, um, he, he's a very distinguished cultural historian at the University of Amsterdam. Uh, he works in two big areas, uh, the critical study of ideas um, of national character, national stereotypes, and national self-images, uh, as well as the transnational history of cultural uh, nationalism. Uh, has published a series of extremely important uh, uh, books. Um, uh, and most recently, I'm not going to, to list them all, um, but most recently has uh, 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 written the Encyclopedia of Romantic Nationalism in Europe. That's coming out 2017, so later this year we look forward to, to launching that. So again, a hugely uh, uh, distinguished uh, scholar. He also happens to be the co-organiser of a conference that's taking place in Trinity uh, over the next couple of days. Uh, he and uh, uh, Jürgen Barkov have, have organised on exploring national stereotyping and cultural identities in recent European crises. So without further ado, if you would join me in welcoming uh, Professor Jo Pearson. Thank you very much, Jane. Um, I, I must return the compliment um, uh, my association with Trinity is something that is massively inspiring uh, for me and something that I cherish and I'm absolutely honoured and awed to have the floor in this, this fine institution. So thank you very much for having me. Um, uh, the, the title might well be, and the talk might well be, a massive form of special pleading by you know, a, a citizen and humanities scholars and the, the, the subtitle would be, How did we get into this mess? Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, and, and to actually make that a less rhetorical question and something that is an operational, you know, hands-on thing, I want to try an analysis. Um, and uh, I want to start. I had a. Uh, I want to start with um, a scene in the movie Annie Hall by Woody Allen. Uh, you may recall it. Um, the hero Alvy Singer, played by Woody himself, uh, is has a daydream. Um, he's lining up to buy movie tickets uh, and he's mightily annoyed by all the pretentious chat that goes on around him, name-dropping uh, that he's forced to listen to. And when some people in the queue begin to start, to start talking about Marshall McLuhan, Woody suddenly, out of nowhere, it is a daydream, uh, produces the man himself, Marshall McLuhan, in a brief cameo appearance. McLuhan sternly berates the superficial pseudo-intellectuals who have taken his name in vain, much to the delight of Woody Allen saying, could it only be like this in real life? I must confess to a similar daydream. Humanities scholars are constantly asked to justify our standing in the world of learning amidst the social and empirical sciences and to demonstrate our practical usefulness, which apparently is less than obvious to most policymakers. Uh, I would then, in, in my daydream, like Woody Allen, magically produce a panorama of things like uh, Donald Trump, Silvio Berlusconi, internet trolls, racist and xenophobic graffiti, Daily Express headlines, the Eurovision Song Contest, pitched battles between Russian and English football hooligans, Nigel Farage, <coughs> fake news items like the Obama wiretap and the Bowling Green terrorist massacre. And then I would say this. All this is because you have systematically ignored, downsized, and downgraded the humanities for the past 40 years. This is what makes us important. It's a daydream. And only a sigh of frustration. What I'll try to do in the next three quarters of an hour 
if you can bear with me at this time of day, is to go beyond the frustration to try and map it and to analyse its causes, to see if there is a more positive way of formulating the importance of the humanities in our present-day world. In doing so, I will take an approach which is particularly that of the humanities. I'll go historical. I'll offer not just a diagnosis or political commentary, but a historical background check. I wish to survey some long-term developments over time in order to identify patterns and operative causes. And so the ground I want to cover in today's lecture is roughly this. I want to survey the history of the humanities over the last two centuries. That history, as I see it, presents two high points and two periods of decline. And these illustrate both the strengths and the weaknesses of the humanities. The first high point is the period of discoveries and consolidation, marked by the name of Matthew Arnold and situated in the mid to late 19th century. The decline that followed can be placed between the 1920s and the 1960s. The second high point is the period of the new methodologies and of critical theory, roughly in the 1970s and 1980s, and the period of decline that followed is hitting rock bottom right now. I will then discuss the rise of a new type of illiberal politics, marked by the rise of ethnopopulism, their reliance on the new media landscape, and the emergence of strongman leadership in this context. And I will then try and point out how this political crisis gives a fresh urgency to the skills and expertise that are the particular domain of the human sciences, and that the humanities have both the opportunity and the responsibility to develop a new public role. I will further summarize this in my conclusion, trying to formulate a core business of the humanities beyond its cycles of success and decline. And I want to suggest three points of attention that I would like you to keep in mind as I explore past, present and future with you. One is that this lecture kicked off with a movie. I didn't do this deliberately. It just emerged that way, but there is something meaningful in that. As I shall work out more fully at the end of this talk, the humanities are the sciences that thrive on, deal with, and exist in a symbiosis with culture. They are the academic extension of culture. And culture, conversely, is not divorced from what we do in the university. Culture has a scientific truth-finding power. It has the power to set us thinking, to spark off ideas, to crystallize vague sensations into a reasoned analysis. I think, for instance, that it's deeply meaningful that the most successful opposition against populist politicians are now the TV satirists, people like John Stewart and John Oliver. So that, you know, the, the, the cultural response might, is some, the creativity of that is, is a very important force in society. The stories, movies, historical experiences that we carry around in our cultural repertoire allow us to view and to understand the world around us in a clearer and more imaginative way. It is no coincidence that we all very often fall back on literary frames, novels, cultural frames, in order to characterize people or situations. Orwellian, Kafkaesque, Quixotic. Culture allows us to envisage the world not as it is, but as it might be. It might help us to formulate utopias, another literary term. Culture allows us to see the world from an imaginative point of view that differs from our actual one. When we read Uncle Tom's Cabin, Jane Eyre, Primo Levi, or when we look at Picasso's Guernica, we sense what it must have been like to be a slave or a Victorian governess or a concentration camp inmate or the victim of an aerial bombardment. Things we are not, but things that we can sense, imagine. Literature and art are empathy machines. 
They expand our imaginative grasp of the varieties of the human experience beyond our own personal life. Second, often the root causes of a general malaise, such as I'm going to try and outline today, are diffuse, complex causalities that are not easily identified or obviously visible. It's not, this causes that. A lack of vitamin C might cause scurvy. A lack of iodine can cause goiter. Pollen can can cause hay fever. Important and drastic phenomena sometimes result from almost invisible causes working in obscurely complex ways. Similarly, the humanities are not a simple lever we can pull or push to create this or that effect. Like the vitamins and trace elements in our diet, they are indispensable for the overall health of society, except that society is reluctant to accept this, like a young child reluctant to take his cod liver oil. And at the outside, therefore, I must move away from the argument that culture is good for you, almost the way cod liver oil is good for you. But I will argue the subcontrary proposition, that a lack of culture is definitely bad for you. While culture may not necessarily solve our problems, a lack of culture will definitely cause them. The culture is good for you argument was powerfully, and I'm now heading into my historical parts, was powerfully brought into circulation 150 years ago by a man whom I admire very deeply, who looks a bit like Terry Neal, except with big whiskers, and who stands next to Woody Allen as the patron saint of this lecture, Matthew Arnold. Um, I'm consciously placing this lecture and the title of this lecture under the uh, auspices of Arnold's interventions in Victorianism 150 years ago his essay on the function of criticism at the present time, and his book, Culture and Anarchy. Arnold was facing a predicament, not unlike the one we are facing today. The Victorians of his day were free market laissez-faire liberals who saw all human transactions as a rational choice. They felt that the highest form of social heroism was entrepreneurship, and that the highest metaphysical force under God was the market force, or as they called it, the invisible hand. They were tasteless addicts to over-ornamented bling, a bit like the Trump Tower. Their notorious prudery was not unlike our present-day political correctness gone mad. They felt that the value of things was zero unless that value was a practical one. (coughs) Art and culture were at best unproductive hobbies for leisure time entertainment or opportunities for showing off your wealth. The Victorians were also jingoistic nationalists, every man jack of them. In other words, they were uncannily like the modern general public. And so I feel that my predicament is very much like Matthew Arnold's. I admire his crusade to convince the Victorians that art and culture mattered, despite a lack of obvious profit or expediency. It was Arnold who convinced us that foreign languages and visits to museums and concerts are good training for young minds. And he gave a raison d'être to the humanities, which he very pithily for his day summarized as a disinterested endeavor to learn and propagate the best that is known and thought in the world. It's a classic phrase, but it's usually quoted with a bit of a snigger. I think, in fact, it still holds nowadays, but we might have to unpack and rethink what he said and what he meant. As he envisaged things 150 years ago, Arnold formulated nothing less than a program of national pedagogics. The word we now use for it is its German original term, Bildung. Bildung was far more than just education. It was a holistic pedagogical package for intellectual and moral character building. Bildung is the reason why you and I were all taken to museums, theatres and historical field trips during our school days. 
The adoption of Bildung as an ideal meant that there was a steady, solid educational demand for language teachers and history teachers. And the teachers of those teachers were the people that Arnold had in mind when he talked of critics in the function of criticism at the present time. Critics were uh, the teachers of society. Much more than book reviewers, art connoisseurs, or erudite antiquarians, they had to have a number of moral qualities. People with a sound judgment, the power of distinguishing between the good, the bad, the ugly, and the indifferent. And that's what he means by the best that is known and taught, and to be able to identify that. They should also be characterized by a broad open-mindedness, the best that is known and thought in the world. So there's a certain cosmopolitanism in there. They should also have an intellectual curiosity and sense of responsibility to share their insights with the rest of society, which is why they are the ones to learn and propagate those things. And finally, they should have a willingness to appreciate things for their own sake, not just for their practical usefulness. And that is why Arnold speaks of the critic's disinterested endeavor to learn and propagate the best that is known and thought in the world. So there's a lot of this in this one sentence. You can see that Arnold's program is in fact deeply rooted in the moral values of the Victorian gentleman, while trying to make that gentleman not just morally upright and strong, but also a little more cultivated, imaginative and intelligent. It was, at the same time, a job description for those who were placed in charge of university departments in the language and history uh, in order to teach the nation's teachers. Before Arnold, critics had been gentlemen of leisure, connoisseurs and intellectuals. In the century after Arnold, they professionalized into academics with a national pedagogical mission. I'll see if my slide. The new wave of humanities delivered great new insights and fresh knowledge. Arnold could point to great achievements in linguistics, in the rediscovery of old documents, in new understandings in history and archaeology. This was a sort of Indiana Jones age of exciting new things coming to light. Ancient manuscripts, forgotten ruins deep in jungles, Troy, the Hittite clay tablets. It was an exciting time to be a humanities scholar. We were discovering manuscripts forgotten in attics all the time and going, wow. Um, nowadays, you know, it, it's still, discovery is what, what drives interest. It's, a, it's an interesting thing that we still have a discovery channel on television and we don't have a deconstruction channel. I think that, that is one of our problems. Yeah. Um, Arnold felt that these new scholarly discoveries would help us understand the world better. He was a positivist. That they would diminish our prejudices and that they would actually improve society. He even stated in so many words in his uh, lectures on Celtic literature that the Irish problem, this was in the, in the 1860s, would eventually be solved by the recently published Celtic grammar of Johann Kaspar Zeus and the academic work of John O'Donovan and Eugene O'Curry. That was the improving power of science even though the grammar was written in Latin. But as the age of discoveries wound down around 1900, humanities grew flabby around the waist. Humanities students enjoyed safe employment prospects because there was always a need for language and history teachers. There was good money in knowing a lot about books and history and culture and stuff. Even better for those who taught the prospective teachers pipe-smoking drama critics and historians, the directors of the burgeoning new museums and national galleries with leather elbow patches on their tweed jackets and prestigious university positions, they developed, shall we say, a certain complacency. It couldn't last. The shift was heralded 
by C.P. Snow's very insightful provocation entitled The Two Cultures, 1959. Snow noted that the educational needs of society were shifting in a more technological direction. The empirical sciences had the future, not the Tweedy humanities. What is more, the baby boom generation challenged the elitism of this Bildung. It became clear that the best that is known and thought in the world amounted in actual practice to a secret code for privileged snobs to keep out the riffraff. Learning and propagating Ezra Pound, Giacometti or Monteverdi was not unlike grouse shooting or saying napkin rather than serviette. That insight was first formulated in the campus novels of the angry young man. Again, it's a novel that really helps you. This was five years before C.P. Snow, Kingsley Amos's Lucky Jim, 1954. Later came the left-wing academics in the 1970s, young Terry Eagleton in France, Pierre Bourdieu. Employment prospects eroded as well. National educational systems pared down cultural subjects, demand for teachers in those fields went down, and as those job prospects dwindled, student numbers for the humanities went down as well. This downward trajectory steepened in the 1980s when Western national governments adopted Friedman-esque economics and toned down the responsibility and the fiscal investment of the state in public affairs. We shouldn't just wring our hands at this. The humanities brought this disinvestment upon themselves. A habit of proclaiming culture is good for you did little to save the world from the miseries of the 20th century. Humanities have not improved society by generating clever interpretations of Swinburne or 14th century shipbuilding techniques. Celtic grammars have not solved the Irish conflict. We must admit that the legacy of Matthew Arnold pales besides the achievements of the technical sciences, antibiotics, contraception, laser surgery, GPS systems. But there is another twist in these developments. I come to my second high point. During the 1970s, the humanities showed a surprising ability to redefine their mission, and Arnold's idea of criticism was replaced by critical theory. It took many forms and led to stormy debates between the old generation of critics and the young generation of critical theories. But then, you know, generation gap debates were the order of the day anyway in any social field. The new generation invoked new names that Arnold would never have approved of. Walter Benjamin, Adorno, Foucault, Simone de Beauvoir, Franz Fanon, Derrida, Althusser, Lacan, a mix of intellectual traditions ultimately derived from non-Arnoldian forerunners like Marx, Nietzsche, Freud and Heidegger. For completeness' sake, I should add to this intellectual genealogy the hermeneutic tradition of Gadamer, the structuralist tradition of Lévi-Strauss, and the culture-semiotic tradition of Bakhtin and Lotman. And the culture that these new critical theory uh, scholars drew on was no longer the novel of the great tradition as it had been for F.R. Lévis. People were going into an analysis of French Nouvelle Vague cinema and new media as well. So the whole landscape changed. In this climate, the business of the humanities was turned inside out. The point was no longer to assert cultural values, but to contest them. The humanities moved from criticism to critique. Cultural pieties, heirlooms and traditions were exposed to doubt, undercut, exposed, interrogated. The technical term that captures a lot of this is deconstruction. Nothing more or less than the demonstration that many things are constructs. Many things that we take for granted are not natural facts of life, but you know, things that have historically been made in order to help social power relations, like the difference between men and women, 
or the natural sense of rhythm of people of African descent, or the objective nature of historical <coughs> facts. You wouldn't believe 50 years after how people believed in that stuff in 1959 and how it's completely discredited now. Arnold had started from an a priori notion that the best was a given and only needed to be recognized. In the 1960s, such notions of canonicity became a problem rather than a starting point. And what was Arnold's world? How Eurocentric, imperial, masculine was it? The effect of this generational shift and this turning inside out of what Arnold had stood for uh, was electric. It coincided with the great emancipation movements of the late 20th century and gave them immense intellectual support. The critical theory humanities of the 1970s were instrumental in the cause of decolonization and the emancipation and destigmatization of women, non-Western cultures, ethnic and sexual minorities. But here too, after this high point, the after effects were a bit of a, you know, a hangover the day after the night before. The heritage is fraught and mixes the good and the bad. Yes, the critical humanities of the 1970s and 80s can boast of proud ethical and intellectual achievements. They have rendered society an immense service. At the same time, they retreated into professional jargon, which was initially necessary for identifying novel concepts. But after logocentrism and heteronormativity, there's only so far you can go. And by now, this has become a new form of communicative hermeticism, verbal ivory towers, an object of caricature rather than a cognitive instrument. This is what you can get at the website bullshitbingo.net. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows that the humanities at this moment have a believability problem uh, with the larger general public when it comes to their you know, hard-won insights. In addition, the critical humanities left um, a problem of a passive-aggressive identity politics and a political correctness gone mad in their wake. I'm not afraid to, to call it that. I confess that I feel distressed at the state of political debate in our day and age. While the hard right is dismantling the essential foundations of civil society and actively abetting the rapacious exploitation of social and natural resources by the super-rich, the left is expending its moral indignation on toilet access for transsexuals. Political correctness gone mad is most of all political correctness that has got its priorities badly wrong and that cannot look beyond its narcissistic preoccupation with language use, the, semantic communication, the semantics of communication and the grievances of affluent Western minorities. On the other side of the political spectrum, the right has profited from another toxic heirloom of the critical theory humanities, namely a radical epistemic relativism. The idea that truth is not objective and universal, such as Matthew Arnold had thought, but something created by stories and shared by a belief community. Something that, you know, um, the great Lebowski would say, hey, that's just your opinion, man. The cult of alternative facts fake news and the self-enclosure in a bubble of like-minded sympathizers and commentators, the unfalsifiability of the world, to invoke Popper, is one of the salient characteristics both of post-structuralist scholarship and of new populism, and we need to reflect on that. So the left is saddled with the moralistic identity politics and the right with conspiracy theories. Let's move to politics. 
The present state of social communication and public debate, what Habermas would call the public sphere, is very close to that state of anarchy that Matthew Arnold had in mind in his book Culture and Anarchy. Again, the situation is complex and many factors are at work. I will list three of them. To begin with, there is a resurgence of nationalism in the form of ethnopopulism. This populism began 15 to 20 years ago as a disparate swarm of malcontents objecting to globalization and arguing for national isolationism and traditionalism, each in their separate countries. They have since then hooked up and coalesced into a broad international movement, mutually supporting each other across the borders. So the irony here is that we have an international unilateralism. Uh, Nigel Farage is having a bromance with Donald Trump. Marine Le Pen, Geert Wilders and others present a Europe-wide political alliance against Europe. And their common ideological base is far more important transnationally than their nationalist appeal and tactics would indicate. <coughs> Ethnopopulism is a new form of hard ethnic nationalism but takes the specific type of constantly and rapidly oscillating between, on the one hand, xenophobia against foreigners, and on the other hand, class-based denunciations of the cosmopolitan elite. They thus appear to give street credibility to their racism because they claim that racism is the outlook of the downtrodden masses who are systematically ignored by the arrogant elites in their ivory towers. Conversely, they justify their anti-elitism by accusing the elite of irresponsibly selling out their country to the sinister forces of Islamic terrorism and mass immigration. Xenophobia is used to denounce the elite. Elite denunciations are used to justify xenophobia. That is the specific new uh, you know, uh, tactics of ethnopopulism. Second, ethnopopulism profits from an, a realignment of the political spectrum. Old divisions between labor and wealth, or between progressive and conservative, are defunct, and the political center ground is dissolving. Which policies are advocated by whom, particularly as regards international relations, breaks down usually by education level rather than by left-right or poor-rich oppositions. Ethnopopulism is above all the political mobilization of the poorly educated, who until recently had no voice in public opinion making those people called rednecks, or those people whom Hillary Clinton fatally called the deplorables. This political mobilization of the poorly educated occurred in tandem with the deprofessionalization of the media. Gone are the days that television viewers had a choice of one or two national channels, BBC One or BBC Two, RTE One, maybe RTE Two, um, run by respectable state broadcasting corporations. By now, different consensus communities inhabit, inhabit different media bubbles. The viewers of Fox News and CNN are as divorced from each other's informations and opinions as Germans and Austrians. The public sphere, as an opinion-pooling ambience, as an imagined community, has split into separate consensus communities. And again, I'm reminded of the Victorians. In 1845, Benjamin Disraeli spoke of the rich and the poor as the two nations. Today, I think we can speak of the populists and the liberals, likewise as two nations, between whom, in Disraeli's words, there is no intercourse and no sympathy, who are as ignorant of each other's habits, thoughts, and feelings as if they were dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets. The print media have likewise entered a crisis, first by the rise of free takeaway papers for commuters, and then by the social media. By now, Twitter has taken over the role of press agencies like Reuters and Associated Press. Even The Guardian, 
will present its breaking news on its websites in the form of quoting Facebook postings or tweets. This means that essential professional skills and responsibilities of journalism are eroding, most importantly fact-checking, and making sure each news item is based on more than a single source. As the income of, new of newspapers is depending more and more on their online advertisers, the web pages even of respectable professional newspapers feel the pull of needing clicks. The need for speed, for clickbait, for presenting an attractive mix between reportage, human interest and opinion uh, op-ed stories has driven media frenzy cycles with increased turnover speed at the cost of nuance and accuracy, thus contributing to an intensification of emotions at the cost of informing detail. The current coverage of the Tuam childcare home is a case in point. As one scandal or media frenzy succeeds another in ever greater frequency, each individually becomes less memorable as the attention span of the public sphere diminishes, while its excitability and irritability increases. The net beneficiaries of this trend are again the populists. The power base of Margaret Thatcher was reached through the Red Top Press, that of Silvio Berlusconi through commercial television, that of Donald Trump and Geert Wilders through their Twitter following. They are past masters of the art of the tweet. And I say that without irony. This, they have mastered something which the traditional politicians are just like deers in the headlights. This aligns with the fact that their electoral base is typically the more poorly educated part of society, the newly enfranchised portions of public opinion. Third factor. Ethnopopulism, while professing anti-elitism, is dominated by strongman leadership. This combination is also often characterized as illiberalism. The party of Geert Wilders has only one member, Geert Wilders himself, meaning that he has no formal accountability to any larger membership. It also means that he has no income from membership fees and that he is open to some suspicions as to the national and international provenance of the private donations that keep his movement going, but he does not have to expose these any more than Donald Trump has to you know, divulge his tax returns. Silvio Berlusconi and Donald Trump are egregious cases of strongman leaders with newly acquired wealth from outside the party political establishment. Once in power, such strongman leaders will dismantle state structures that render them accountable to state officials, political representatives, or even constitutional restrictions. Think of Hungary's Viktor Orban, Poland's Jaroslav Kaczynski, Turkey's Erdogan, Venezuela's Hugo Chavez, the Philippines' Rodrigo Duterte. The appeal of strongman leaders rests not on their party political or institutional power to power base, but on their media popularity. The rise of Boris Johnson has also profited from this new post-Biberian media charisma, which often works by virtue of some comic gormlessness. To be a sort of ho endearing Homer Simpson character helps if you look at the success of some, uh, of, some of these people. <coughs> Such leaders, th that's why I'm not... Uh, analyzing them in terms of a Weberian charismatic leader because they're, they're, the Weberian charisma was different from the media appeal that we see nowadays. Such leaders will often claim support from their power base because they present themselves as somehow gormless, as anti-establishment, as anti-elitist, despite the fact that they may be billionaires as well as heads of state, and the voice of the people at large rebelling against state institutions. They will also retreat from the international treaty obligations that hamper their exercise of authority and tend towards unilateralism, calling for opt-outs from the European Charter on Human Rights and various resolutions of the United Nations or the Security Council. These different aspects all mutually reinforce each other. This breakdown of checks and balances, if I may be allowed a little historical footnote, 
both in inter internal and in international affair relations, bears an uncanny resemblance to the situation of Europe in 1910, after the scramble for Africa and the decline of the Ottoman Empire. For that reason, I would compare the personalities of the strongman leaders of today not with the fascists of the 1920s and 1930s. I think that is totally unhelpful to call, to, to, to you know, shout Hitler once again. I think it is useless to refer to fascism and to Hitler here because the new ethnic populism does not exhibit the militaristic cult of discipline, uniforms, or the mystique of racial descent that is characteristic of the extreme right. I am reminded much more strongly of the heedless and unhinged chauvinism of the years between 1900 and 1914, the strange death of liberal England, the years of French revanchism over Alsace-Lorraine. Vladimir Putin is a reincarnation of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Both men have in common the same combination of encirclement phobia, not unjustified, narcissism, authoritarianism, and erratic foreign interventions. Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu are rebuilding the Maginot Line. Today's immigration phobia and anti-Islamism recalls the fear of the yellow peril. Our obsessive compulsive habit of long-grinding inquiries and scandal gates was kicked off by the Dreyfus Affair. And Boris Johnson is absolutely justified to see himself as the successor of Winston Churchill. The young Winston Churchill, that is. The oafish little toff who was drunk on Kipling, class privilege, and imperial nostalgia, the Churchill of the Boer Wars and the delusional World War I strategies. And so, what, we ha what have the humanities to do with all this? What is the relationship between the present state of the humanities and the present state of the public sphere between culture and anarchy? It appears to me that the present lack of proper control on the new populist strongman is not only an institutional failure, but also an intellectual one, and partly explicable from the medium as it determines the message. So I do pull Marshall McLuhan out of the woodworks here. The social media, Twitter and Facebook, are the new fourth estate, the privileged forum for the newly enfranchised, low-educated sections of society. But unlike proper journalism, the new media have no educational or professional standards, while they do wield enormous clout. They crowdsource public opinion. And as the record title had it, 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. In that process, reality checks evaporate, retweets take the place of verification, and facts are drowned out by opinions and fictions. Fake news, alternative facts, you name it. This is in the nature of the medium, not that of its users. Throughout the history of the internet, spam has driven out information. It happened first on discussion boards. The word spam was actually first used in its digital meaning to describe the great volumes of irrelevant advertisements on discussion boards. Spam then infected email and is currently affecting Facebook and Twitter and search engines like Google. I don't know if you, you tried out that experiment, if you type in uh, wi uh, Women are, and then you let Google fill in the, uh, the missing word, or uh, um, you know, uh, African-Americans are, the, the things that Google offers you, the, what women might be or what African-Americans, is shocking. I mean, and and how, how does this emerge? How does Google prioritize in its search engines, in its mindless algorithm, algorithms, biased or extreme opinions generated by trolls? Google now tells us not what we want to know, but what it thinks we want to know. And that selection is prefaced by sponsored links from advertisers who want to tell us what they think we should need to know. 
The spamification of the Internet gained huge momentum with the arrival of cookies and the Internet 2.0. The Internet then started to make use of its users. Clickable like icons made their appearance. Posted material was uh, given space for user comment. From YouTube to newspaper websites, people could below the line say what they thought of it. And that is when, out of spam, arose the Internet trolls. These trolls, rather than sinister Russian hackers, were the real support troops for Trump during the re recent presidential campaign. And they arose not out of the stupidity of the deplorables or the wickedness of this or that politician, but out of the logic of this new emerging medium. In the troll-infested habitat of tweets and below-the-line comments, words have taken on a new power even while they have been harnessed into tighter, shorter, more constricted form. Such serrated soundbites have no room for nuance or mixed feelings, but they achieve in all their blunt brevity a far deeper and wider social penetration than print media, and they are given far greater number of people active access to the public sphere. This lapidary mass circulation soundbite has become a powerful weapon of verbal aggression. They are often anonymous, often deploy libelous, derogatory, brutalizing or hate-inciting language. Uh, a particularly awful case was with the arrival of uh, asylum seekers in, in Germany, the wave of Facebook postings and tweets saying that these people should be given asylum in Auschwitz and similar forms of witticism. Um, at the same time, they either enjoy the protection of our constitutional freedom of expression or they are too anonymous and diffuse to make legal prosecution feasible. It strikes me that the lawless, anarchic new frontier, the Wild West in public communications urgently requires reg regulation and not the deer-in-the-headlight response we have seen so far or some vague metaphysical hope that the market will, you know, right itself. The communication of the new social media takes place, rampantly so, in an ambience where the writ of the law does not run and that amounts to an intolerable challenge. The state cannot afford to ignore the rise of the new tweeting trollocracy in any more than that it can afford to ignore widespread smuggling, crime syndicates or counterfeit money. Propaganda machines mask as news channels, be they called Russia Today or Breitbart. They need to be confronted by media watchdogs and these media watchdogs need to know what they're doing. This is where I see the beginnings of a new task for humanities scholars. The intensity of verbal exchanges in the new media may be grounded in the legitimate pursuit of public communication and freedom of expression. But under the cloak of crowd-sourced, uh, unaccountable anonymity, they have systemically spawned mendacious disinformation, poisoning the wells of public opinion, and have given a new platform and harbour for illegal activities such as libel, slander and incitements to racial hatred. A laissez-faire attitude is not an option here. The new and often toxic power of words needs to be addressed by people who know about words. And I'm thinking of two fronts. On the one hand, by the judiciary, who traditionally have worked on words, law texts and social action. I'll be brief on this score. I remark only that as the judiciary will have to come to terms with dog whistle racism and the coded and oblique ways in which libelous, slanderous or discriminatory utterances are being spread around, a common sense understanding of what texts mean is going to be insufficient. So far, this has been the default approach. Language belongs to everyone, so lawyers and judges just discuss their intuitive explanations and interpretations of what they think certain statements mean or imply. 
This had led to fraught debates in cases of certain racist comments by the Dutch politician Geert Wilders, which were brought before the court, or the satirical invective poem directed against President Erdogan by a German TV comedian, which was also brought before the court. The problem was that there was no clear distinction between the general public's discussion of this case and the courtroom proceedings. In the case of courtroom proceedings, a more forensic, professional understanding is needed concerning language, speech acts, rhetoric, and the agency of discourse. If courts give just their common or garden interpretation of how they perceive certain acts of verbal violence, well then, hey, that's just your opinion, man. And the courts open themselves up to the usual populist countercharge that as a liberal elite, they're only trying to shut up the justified grievances of the man in the street. Trolls have a habit of morphing into aggrieved victims as soon as they are challenged. So what is needed in the application of the law is an objective, technical and disinterested expertise on how language and rhetoric work. Judges habitually take recourse to financial, fiscal or medical expertise in their deliberation over complex cases in terms of bankruptcies or you know, other uh, specialist areas. They should, by the same token, draw on the expertise of the humanities when deciding what words can do, how they work, what satire actually means, and how rhetorical stratagems function, such as dog whistle racism, ellipsis, or irony. There is, in other words, an urgent need for a public application of linguistic and discourse analytical expertise, and the humanities have this to offer. We know from George Orwell's 1984, we know from Viktor Klemper's analysis of the language of the Third Reich, that language is never an inconsequential expression of what people think, but also a powerful tool in abusive politics. We cannot afford not to act upon that knowledge, and the need to police the boundaries of what is legally permissible in the uncharted terrain of new media. That was one point. The other point, and I'm moving towards my, my conclusions now, is an urgent need for the humanities in the educational field, very much in Matthew Arnold's sense. In the public debate that encompasses and empowers much wider sections of society, the general public is often hoodwinked by specious logic and fallacious arguments. The classical rules of rhetoric that were inculcated on the highly educated elites of Arnold's days are less familiar in the broader circles that are now participating in public opinion making. Simple logical rules for clear thinking and for critically checking the things that people tell you are being sinned against without people noticing this. Habitually, tweeters resort to arguments ad hominem, personally vilifying people rather than engaging with the things they say. I will spare you the examples. You will have no trouble calling some of these to mind. And while an argument ad hominem would automatically disqualify uh, somebody in a traditional debate, it is now par for the course. It's the new normal. The way, as, as I learned from John Oliver, you know, the, the, the career of Dan Quayle was destroyed when he misspelled potato, and Donald Trump can, Trump can afford to misspell tap. That's, that is worrying, you know, when it comes to educational standards. Other fundamental sins against fair reasonal, reasoning are fallacious syllogisms. Donald Trump's immigration ban rested on the premises that many terrorists are Muslims, many immigrants are Muslims, to conclude that therefore many immigrants are terrorists and Muslims should be banned from immigrating. Swans are birds, finches are birds, therefore finches are swans and birds should be banned. The liberal left got stuck in moral indignation about Trump's ethnocentrism and insensitivity as to the human hardship caused by the ban. Few actually tackled him on his untenable logic. 
It is as if a shop owner miscalculates our bill, gives us back insufficient change, and we complain only of the fact that he has bad breath. The language of social media politics sins on a uh, daily basis, not just against ethical or legal standards, but against simple rules of logic. And the great pity is that the public is apparently under-equipped to identify and to spot this. It is not unlike the problem of innumeracy. A lot of people have not been taught in school to calculate properly. The larger public is too little versed in complex arithmetic to understand the obscure financial payment schemes for mobile phone plans or internet subscriptions. And so we're diddled out of money. Five gigabytes and 100 minutes talk time free per month with two euro per day extra for each additional megabyte or six gigabytes and 120 minutes talk time free for each three week period with five euro, by, euro per megabyte extra for each additional day plus free roaming on Wednesdays and Thursdays. What is the better deal? <laughs> My firm conviction is that elementary logic, the ability to see through mendacious or fallacious reasoning ought to be a central part of our educational curriculum in order to prepare pupils for the verbal hurricanes of the modern world. What is more, in our education we need to reinstate a proper respect for the facts and undo the mischief of total epistemic relativism, as if everything we believe is just a matter of opinions and narratives. We need to inoculate the coming generations against conspiracy theories and fast-talking scammers and spammers, we may not know what the actual objective truth is, but we should be able to recognize falsehoods when we encounter them. We need to teach kids to not to take anything for granted that they are told or that they read on a can of sardines. And that means we need to teach them a spirit of, wait for it, criticism. And by criticism I mean in the spirit of the great classical scholar August Böck, not just understanding stuff, but understanding how that works understanding how we understand stuff. Böck called this das Erkennen des Erkannten, typically German 19th century phrase, but it's very wise, understanding how things are understood. And with that abstract principle, which incidentally uh, was inspired by Tristram Shandy, you see that there's a lovely combination again of Woody Allen and, you know, moaning lectures, um, uh, he formulated the very core business of the humanities. And this is what, what I think we need to bring into the public sphere to face the present crisis, both in, in the academy and in society. Um, Berg's definition goes back to the great revolutionary genius, I'm going to give you one slide here, of Giambattista Vico, who in his book The New Science gave the first systematic distinction between those sciences that seek to understand human intellectual life and those that seek to understand physical nature. The formal, former, the natural sciences, Vico called philosophy. The others, the human sciences, he called philology, and that is what, where we are coming from. And this, with this he provided a robust theory to make sense of that distinction. So I'm not just you know, sounding off myself and quoting my intellectual sources as a scholarship. This is where I got my opinions and where I, I got my, the, what, what power of conviction I hope to have. From the day of Vico, by way of Böck and Matthew Arnold, the human sciences have always defined themselves in relation to the hard empirical sciences as the science of understanding rather than explaining, the sciences that deal with the meaning of things rather than their nature, the sciences that try to capture the varieties and variabilities of the human experience rather than the immutable laws of nature. From this, by the way, I was reminded of this tradition of what the humanities do when I read Dylan Thomas's Child's Christmas in Wales, when Dylan Thomas defines the useful presence he got from boring ants. 
they were, uh, do I, uh, do I, uh, oh, yeah. don't have it there. The, the useful presents were books that told me everything about the wasp, except why. And I think he intuited the, ne- the necessity for the humanities in, 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 that, uh, in that sentence. So to conclude, I think we can derive a core business which I suggest is indispensable in today's world and which I want to present to you to take home with you or to challenge me on. What the humanities know and teach better than anyone is how complex language is. Language is not the straightforward verbalized expression of ideas, but a powerful instrument with complex functions, which range from the communicative to the poetical, the persuasive, the manipulative, and even the cognitive. And we should alert our young generations to the complexity of this language that they wield in the public sphere. On that basis, people can understand that the meaning of things is not a given, that is to say, that's just how things are. But that the meaning of things results from a dialogic process. In discussing the meaning of things, we need to distinguish between truth and certainty. And realize that while we cannot know the truth, we can recognize a falsehood. Certainly those falsehoods that rely on improper reasoning, which is as objective and demonstrable as bad arithmetics. Another fundamental insight for the humanities in our toolkit is the realization that everything we know we have learned from somebody else. And that means that our knowledge is only as reliable as those parties that we got it from. I have a really nasty thing here on uh, Donald Trump and David Hume, but I'm going to skip it because you're getting tired. Um, The humanities, like any proper academic discipline, situate their knowledge in the much wider field of what we do not know. Knowledge is an island in a sea of ignorance, and we need to explore the shores of that island. Otherwise, we have no proper understanding of our knowledge. We constantly need to recalibrate the cognitive relationship between those two. This relativizes our knowledge and allows for more openness to different voices, more listening, less shouting, more openness to learning new stuff rather than just restating received opinion, the bleeding obvious, or our entrenched dogmas. We cannot think properly unless we also think about how we think. We cannot talk properly unless we also talk about how we talk. We need to explain to each other and to ourselves not only what we like and what we think is important, but also why we like it and why we think it is important. The essence of culture is that as human beings and sentient beings, we don't just perform our actions, but we also think about them. We reflect about them. We think and we reflect about how we think about them. That is what makes us more than selfish genes or rational choice-driven consumers. That is what makes us real humans and responsible citizens. And that is why culture is important in society. It's not just a hobby. It's not just something you do in your spare time when you switch on the television. It is a form of social praxis. The time is late. You're tired. But let me suggest to you that the Northern Irish peace process, to bring this home to this place, needed to be kick-started by artists and intellectuals thinking beyond and outside the entrenched patterns of the given situation. A play like Frank McGuinness's Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching to the Somme, appearing as it did in the mid-80s, taught Dublin audiences something completely new at the time, to see the world through the eyes of traumatised northern Protestants. That is the power of literature, to displace ourselves in other positions, a machine for empathising and for imagining the world from another point of view. And the humanities as the academic extension of culture are indispensable for giving that to our society. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion with which I want to leave you. In our transforming public sphere, there is a growing and urgent need to combat ignorance and a lack of empathetic and imaginative power. 
The humanities need to meet this by redefining their mission and core business and by foregrounding those critical, transferable skills which until now were taken for granted. The humanities need to spread and prioritize those skills 150 years after Matthew Arnold, also through education. Thank you for your attention.